This is a re-recording of a sermon delivered by Keith Baird, clinical psychologist, delivered to the Congregation of the Evangelical Covenant Church of Hinsdale on Sunday morning, September 11, 2016. It goes as follows. <clears throat> Good morning. You may find it quite surprising that I am the one standing here before you to deliver the message on this rally Sunday. I find it rather surprising, too. I received a call several weeks ago from Paul Allen inviting me to give the rally day message. Imagine getting that kind of call. Wait, what? Me? What, did he butt dial me by mistake? I'm thinking, I'm not a pastor. I've never been to seminary. Why me? By the way, do you know what the number one fear is? public speaking, and the number two is dying. So I guess people would rather die than speak in front of a group. Insert congregational laughter. Paul explained to me that this fall, the sermon series, is going to be looking at our spiritual health, fostering our relationship with God. And they have asked me, a psychologist, to start it off by looking at emotional health, knowing that it relates to spiritual health and so I stand before you humbly, incredibly, to talk to you on this Rally Sunday. I would like to start us off by entering into prayer, but a silent prayer. Go ahead and close your eyes and breathe deeply and slowly the way you imagine you do when you're sleeping, but please stay awake. In the silence, Take time to empty your mind of your present distractions. Release those concerns and intruding thoughts. You can always pick them up later. Picture being in a room that represents your soul. You open the door and sweep the distractions and concerns out, emptying the room of the commotion, the distractions. With that, let us pray. Lord, help us be still. Now picture that entering through that open door is God's presence, a refreshing breeze, a calm. We can greet the Holy Spirit more readily when we're still and emptied. So take another moment of silence in your stillness to say, Lord, I am willing and ready to receive you. I would like to talk this morning about emotional health within the context of spiritual health to set the table, if you will, about what is coming down the pike in the sermons that we will be listening to this fall. Let me begin by sharing this perspective. <clears throat> I've been a clinical psychologist for 30 years. Over that time, I have had the privilege of spending over 40,000 hours talking to people from every imaginable walk of life. Some of these hours were spent with famous people, but most were ordinary like you and me. Some have been homeless, others multimillionaires. From Fortune 100 CEOs to store clerks, every imaginable walk of life and every imaginable life circumstance 
Each has come to me to somehow address their human limitations to cope with some kind of suffering or problem. And I have seen some terrible suffering. Cancerous brain tumors, premature death, loss of a job, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, betrayal, imprisonment, suicide, divorce, school stress, depression, money problems, and the seemingly ubiquitous anxiety and worry that's seemingly everywhere. The list is rather exhaustive and exhausting. But I have also been inspired more times than I can tell you by the incredible resilience of the human character. The pastor who took a giant fall morally that was highly publicized. He lost everything, his spouse, his relationships with his children, his church, his career, his personal property, and his finances. He said to me, it's amazing how you find out that all you need is Jesus when all you have left is Jesus. Over the years, he has been forced to reevaluate some core assumptions about life, intimacy, sexuality, faith, and truth. He has done the hard work of personal transformation, improved his emotional health, and with it his spiritual health, and is now prepared to work with other leaders who have fallen. Or the woman who, in her reckless early 20s, killed two sisters in a crosswalk as a drunk driver. Imagine those regrets and the pain it has caused the girls' families. She got sober. She went to medical school and became a physician dealing with high-risk patients. She has literally saved the lives of thousands of people over three decades. And yet she would tell you that this never made up for the two lives that she took. But I said to her that it is certainly inspiring to see what she has done in response to her mistake. Recovery healing, redemption. And there are many other stories, perhaps less dramatic, but equally heroic of people who have responded to adversity magnificently. So from all of this work, including my own 10 years of personal therapy, I conclude the following. I do not recall a single time when someone felt a sense of completeness, wholeness, or freedom from anxiety through only the pursuit of mental health. No matter how much therapy, good fortune, or even a great disposition you have from the start, no one achieves a sense of wholeness outside of a relationship with God. I challenge you to reflect on your own experiences. We can have loving families, great friends, good health, and every success in the conventional sense. But who among us, who among us, even with all of these things, can say that they still don't feel some restlessness some sense of incompleteness. I can only conclude that we are fundamentally designed to be in relationship with God. For emphasis, I can only conclude that we are fundamentally designed to be in relationship with God. When I feel close to God, I feel whole. I am not restless. I am not anxious about my life. And so nothing in the end is more important than the pursuit of God, or perhaps put more accurately, nothing is more important than settling myself down sufficiently so that God's pursuit of me can take hold. It is through being emotionally healthy that we can settle ourselves down to allow God to reach into us, to become those image bearers, to become more capable 
of being Christ present in the lives of others. The Matthew 6.25 worry passage is often quoted by our confirmands as the most meaningful passage to them. You see, our teenagers and even the children in our children's sermon this morning worry about something. So I want to use this analogy. Consider spiritual health being like the physical health in our bodies. We can ignore our spiritual health and get along just like we can ignore our physical health. And some of us can get away with it most of our lives. But sooner or later, if we neglect our physical health, it's going to catch up with us and cause illness and disease. So, too, if we neglect our spiritual health, it is like we live life exhausted, depleting, depleted, lacking in endurance, no sense of fitness, vibrancy, or well-being. If spiritual health is like the physical condition of our bodies, then emotional health is our diet, what we use to supply our bodies. Emotional health is the nutrient, the fortification that fuels us to pursue spiritual health. It's not an absolute requirement. Remember, some can be healthy on a lousy diet, but it's just not true for most of us. So, pursuing emotional health paves the way for the unfolding of our spiritual journeys with more depth, meaning, and vibrancy. Emotional health goes hand in hand with spiritual health to lead us towards being what we're designed to be, image bearers of God. Emotional health propels us along to grow and evolve as human beings, and along the way it removes unhelpful defenses, destructive behaviors to ourselves and others. It turns us into more courageous people willing to see ourselves and others in an unblemished way without cowering, without judgment, or without pulling away. Emotional health paves the way for us to encounter one another more fully in the way that Jesus approached everyone from every walk of life in a fully present way. Emotional health allows us to expect realistic entitlements, as James Masterson said, living in that wide open space between doormat and pathological narcissism. If we overvalue ourselves, it creates a distraction in the moment and robs us of the ability to be more truly present to one another, and it interferes with our capacity to be true image bearers of God. So, too, if we undervalue ourselves and behave like doormats, it can create the same kind of distraction. It pulls us away from the present moment or more full engagement with another person and pulls us away from being image bearers of God. So, as they say in 12-step programs, be right-sized. So, what is emotional health? Is it happiness? Is it assertiveness? Is is it a sense of humor? People who know me well would say that my sense of humor may be more of an indication of mental disturbance than emotional health. But it does remind me of a joke. Two psychiatrists are walking along the sidewalk and pass each other, and as they do so, one says to the other, You're fine. How am I? Insert uproarious parishioner laughter here. So let me make three points about all of this. And one thing I know about listening to a lot of sermons over several decades is that for some reason, there are supposed to be three major points. So here are mine. One, mental health is flexible adaptation to change. Two, 
Mental health is also when your emotions match your circumstances. And three, you are more likely to reach emotional health when you become more courageous and lean into every emotion that shows up in response to your circumstances, whatever they may be. So what does mental health look like in a 16-year-old girl with muscular dystrophy who knows that she will lose the ability to walk in two years, maybe live through her 20s, but almost certainly die in her 30s? Mental health for her is not going to look like glee and probably not happiness in the conventional sense, at least not on a routine basis. What does mental health look like in a mother whose five-year-old has died from cancer, whose husband has left her and she is economically distressed? Mental health for her is not going to be a lot of laughter and exuberance. Smith Magazine did a six-word memoir project where you send in your memoir, but you have to do it in six words. Mine was, and is still true today, some guilt for being so blessed. But they published the first volume, and the title of the book was one of the favorite memoirs, which was, Not Quite What I Was Planning. How many of us can hear that one and not just nod our heads in agreement? So step one in mental health, flexible adaptation to change. I'm going to read this one twice. Flexible adaptation to change means the ability to take in the magnitude of your circumstances, endure them, embrace them, which does not mean like them, approve of them, or necessarily accept them, but where your circumstances well with dignity and grace and keep carrying out your life purpose and live a values-driven life despite your hardships. That's a really long run-on sentence. Editors would not be happy with me. I'll read it again. Flexible adaptation to change means the ability to take in the magnitude of your circumstances, endure them, embrace them, which means does not necessarily like them or approve of them, or necessarily accept them, but to wear your circumstances well with dignity and grace and continue to carry out your life purpose and live a values-driven life despite your hardships. That is the kind of heroism that inspires me beyond words. And I love the saying that change is inevitable, growth is optional. So, in addition to step one of mental health, being flexible, fe- flexibly adaptive to change, something is different, so you change with it, mental health is also when your emotions match your circumstances. Faced with unbearable loss, it is healthy to grieve, to clutch your chest, to lose sleep or sleep too much, to lose weight or gain weight, to have a lot of doubts about the universe, about God and faith. But... It is also about feeling joy and happiness, especially when things are going well. More recently, psychologists have asked the curious question, is your pain clean or dirty? Clean pain is the stuff that comes from simply being alive and being on the planet for more than a few years. You are going to have emotional pain, death, loss, disappointments, illness, heartache, loss of love, financial setbacks. It's more a when than an if something is going to happen that causes you grief. But clean pain is when you can tolerate and accept hardship, pain and suffering as part of life and take them all on directly. 
Dirty pain is what happens when we try to avoid clean pain. Try to avoid grief and stuff it down, and you could end up with clinical depression. So we've covered definitions of mental health, flexible adaptation to change, when your emotions match your circumstances. And third, you are more likely to reach emotional health when you become more courageous and lean into every emotion that shows up in response to your circumstances, whatever they may be. Most of you know that my dear wife of 28 years, Beverly, is in late-stage Alzheimer's. It is a devastating illness with an outcome that is defined in terms of a when, not if, it is going to take her life. It has already taken so much of her. If somebody were to ask me under the circumstances if I am happy, I would tell you that that is the wrong question. To be happy in the context of her disease is to betray our circumstances and to belittle her life. A better question is, am I emotionally healthy? And I will tell you that every day I cry in grief, but every day I laugh heartily from my gut about something. I have learned that emotions are not going to kill me. I, in quote, merely need the courage to lean into every emotion fully with gusto and courage joy wonder seeing the opportunities to every day loss grief jealousy about couples planning for retirement but i can engage life in all of these emotions and feel passion energy and engagement feeling fully alive even though i am not happy i am also not in despair or depressed although i grieve and these can feel the same but all of this is clean pain. Martin Seligman, a psychologist who has had a remarkable career, began with his famous experiment of creating depression in dogs, the poor critters. He would put these dogs in a wire mesh cage with a barrier that they could jump over, but it had a top on it so they couldn't jump out of the cage, and the dogs would be put in the cage. They would shock the floor. The dog would jump over the barrier to escape the shock. And then in the second phase of the experiment, they would shock both sides of the cage. So the dog would jump over the barrier and get shocked, and he jumped back and forth until he realized it was pointless to keep jumping back and forth. I'm going to get shocked no matter what. And so the dog sat in a lump on the floor of the cage getting shocked, but realizing there's no point in taking action because I cannot affect a positive outcome. And the dog, in fact, looked depressed. How many of us in life haven't been in a cage like that at some point? Huh? Anyway, this experiment, which created the learned helplessness model of depression, occurred decades ago when Martin Seligman was an atheist. He would go on eventually to become the father of the positive psychology movement as he became a believer. His latest work is on learning how to flourish regardless of your circumstances, and he uses the acronym PERMA. You flourish when you pursue positive emotions, when you feel a sense of engagement in your life, when you pursue relationships, when you seek meaning in your life, and then finally take action based upon your values. Jesus gives us an example of someone who flourished. He experienced a wide range of emotions that were appropriate under his circumstances. 
a sense of humor, tears, anger, frustration, loneliness, laughter, celebration, and we are all invited and encouraged to be Christ-like. He was engaged in his life. He pursued relationships. He certainly found meaning in what he was doing, and he acted according to his values. As image bearers, you and I are encouraged to do the same. So if you want to improve your emotional health, I would suggest that the starting point for most of us is getting better at managing daily anxiety. Most of us worry too much about things that in the end don't really matter. I heard a preacher once say that anxiety is faith in the wrong outcome. So if you have anxiety, if you feel restless, the first step is to ask yourself, do you know why you are anxious? If you don't, sit with it long enough to get a sense of what it is about. That may be sitting in a chair alone in a room for 10 minutes doing nothing to see what shows up inside of you that may inform you about the nature of your anxiety. If you are aware of your anxiety, try not to engage in maladaptive behaviors to get rid of the anxiety, such as addictions. Others simply let it float freely and they have panic attacks or lost productivity or indecisiveness. If you are anxious, ask yourself if the anxiety ought to be there. Anxiety is like a fire alarm or a car alarm. It is supposed to go off when we are doing something that we need to pay attention to. I had an executive come to me for treatment of his anxiety as he was laying off his workforce to send the jobs overseas to Africa. Maybe he ought to be anxious and not just treat the anxiety but change his behavior. Or the man having an affair and is overcome with anxiety and wants treatment for the anxiety. Well, maybe you need to make another choice about your behavior. But we can be chronically anxious, and then it's like the car alarm that is stuck on and is merely an annoyance. Sometimes it gets stuck on because we have let things get out of balance. We have allowed ourselves to be too busy. We are almost relieved when we face a crisis because it forces us to reset our priorities. So change your circumstances if your anxiety is telling you that there is something you ought to be aware of. If you are anxious but there is no reason to justify it, learn meditation techniques or mindfulness training. You can look up MBSR and get trained in that. Particularly if you have a family history of anxiety, get a professional evaluation because there may be other treatment options available to you. I attended Catholic masses when I was in college, and a priest would pray at every morning mass when I was in college, Lord, keep us free of all unnecessary anxiety. Lowering our anxiety that is unnecessary is one of the best ways to prepare ourselves to grow spiritually. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, help us to be like Jesus who laughed, wept, was angry, lonely, joyful, loved, confronted, comforted, suffered, and forgave, who remained engaged in his life and acted in accordance with his values and life calling, no matter his circumstance. May we go and do likewise in his name and for his glory. Amen and Amen.